my grandchildren believe uh, that I was around at, during Lincoln's administration. And uh, if I had have been, I would have been chosen the one to speak after the Gettysburg Address. After hearing uh, the previous address, I, I, that's exactly where I would be. I, I was so happy with uh, Richard Taylor, however, because uh, he's sort of the Daffy Duck of science, and that pleases me enormously. <laughs> there was an old joke, too, that I, I, I think he could demonstrate to most of us, and that was one where you held up a hand like this with the two center fingers apparently missing. That's a lion tamer calling for four beers. <laughs> the... Um, there's been so much inspirational talk in the last few days that uh, I, I, I feel like maybe I should start my life over again and do something important, like maybe inventing a new toilet freshener. Um, because my life, far from being involved with, uh, with confidence, has been indeed uh, leading people who lack it. Uh, Daffy Duck and Elmer Fudd and uh, people of this nature, Wile E. Coyote. I, I, uh, I offered Miss Butcher uh, Wile E. Coyote as her lead dog, but for some reason known only to her, she refused. The, um, I, I have something also very much in common with Columbia University in that uh, I, I've never had any goals. Uh, <laughs> When I came out of uh, art school in the uh, middle of the Depression, I, uh, I thought that if I were very lucky, I'd get a job in a service station. And uh, I'd worked my way through school by being a janitor, and uh, I was very good at that, but there, were, but there were plenty of practicing janitors out there, and apprentice janitors, and uh, apprentice garbage men even were, had trouble. Um, although I do think it's wonderful to go from garbage collecting to television. It seems a natural step. <laughs> when I came out of school, however, and uh, I said I was hoping to get a job, and a, a few years before that, um, Walt Disney had come out uh, to the coast, and uh, this was in, in Los Angeles, Hollywood, and uh, had come out and formed a studio, and other studios followed. And they were looking for people that could draw a little, and I could draw a little. So uh, that marvelous, incredibly wonderful day happened to me when I was asked to uh, come to work for a studio. And I was offered to, somebody offered to pay me for doing what I enjoyed most. Uh, to this day, to me, that is the only worthwhile way to live, is to get some gullible person to pay you to do what you enjoy doing. Uh, the second thing is that I, when they stopped making animated cartoons at Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers pulled the rug out from under us, um, I was offered a chance, like some of the other studios, to go into children's television. But I had long ago come to the conclusion that if you have a worthy craft, you must try to be worthy of that craft. If, that's, if that is a goal, then that's, that was my goal and always will be. Uh, animation may seem to be trivial, but uh, if it makes your living, it can't be considered to be trivial to you. 
it's fun to uh, watch somebody slip on a banana peel, but it's no fun to slip on one, even though you make your living that way. But I, I feel that any craft that you're in, whatever you're doing, the most important thing is to the, the most, the least that you owe an audience is the best you can do. And I always felt that was absolutely true. And uh, when I first came into art school, I, uh, our freshman class, although we weren't called freshmen, we thought of ourselves as young artists. Why would we be in art school if we couldn't draw? And this wonderful old man got up in front of us and his name, he must have been terribly old, he's 47 or 8, and, uh, and uh, his name was the remarkable name of Francois Murphy. And Francois Murphy looked down at them the way I'm looking down at you, and he said, um, every one of you birds has 100,000 bad drawings in you. The sooner you get rid of them, the better it'll be for everybody. <laughs> Not for you, mind you, for everybody. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, some of the guys got up and left, but I didn't because I had no place to go. And I was already on my second 100,000. Uh, we're given six minutes here, and I this year is my 60th year in animation, so that means you uh, you have a minute for each 10 years, and uh, that I, that's what I have, and that's probably about right. The uh, I'd like to say a word in favor of management, though, as it applied to animation, animated cartoons. I had two uh, producers, both of whom were unique in their own way. One of them was a man named Eddie Selzer, and uh, as Wilson Meisner said, he went through life like an untipped waiter. Uh, <laughs> he said he was always willing to give a helping hand to the man above him. He gave us, he was so wrong on so many occasions that uh, we began to depend upon him. And uh, one time he came to the doorway where Mike Maltese, the writer I worked with, were sitting there, and he stood there, and he looked, he looked like his, his suit had been tailored by the same man that tailored Mao Zedong's, you know, the kind that uh, covered your, came down here. His, his fingers were so short he only had one knuckle. And, uh, but he was a dreadful little man. Uh, but he served his purpose because he stood there one day and he says, I don't want any pictures about about uh, bullfights. He says, there's nothing funny about bullfights. And he walked out and Mike and I looked at each other and we suddenly thought, we'd never thought of making a picture about bullfights. <laughs> and, uh, but Mike said, there must be something there because Eddie, uh, <laughs> So he served many purposes and um, it shows that you can trust management. And um, the other one was a man by the name of Leon Schlesinger. And uh, Leon looked like a, like a soft destroyer, and he always walked that way. He walked like this, you know, a destroyer putting out to sea. He was very stupid, and he had a slight, <laughs> which was helpful. He had a, and he had a, he had a slight lisp, and he'd come back and say, yeah. and we were sitting around, a bunch of us sitting around talking, and he'd say, "What you working on, fellow?" And um, well, we knew knew he wasn't listening to us, so we'd say, we're, well, we're working on a picture about Daffy Duck. And it turns out Daffy isn't a duck at all. He's a transvestite chicken. <laughs> and uh, so they, uh, he said, that's the boys. Put in lots of jokes. I'm off to the wraith. Of, have you, <laughs> well, well, if you don't know what a wraith is, it's where horses run. <laughs> so um, he went off to the wraith of, and... Uh, 
And Cal Howard turned to Tex Avery, who was directing a picture called uh, Parky's Duck Hunt, and he says, why don't you use Leon's voice on that duck? And uh, because the voice he was using at that time was kind of a woo-woo kind of a voice, not particularly funny. So we called in Mel Blanc and asked him if he could imitate Leon Schlesinger, and he said, oh, sure, I can. And I go, why the hell not, if you'll pay me? And so, uh, so we paid him, and he did. And then about halfway through the picture, we realized that there would come the day when that picture would be shown on the screen, and Leon would hear his own voice coming out of the duck. <laughs> So we, so we uh, all wrote our, wrote our resignations and uh, were prepared for the worst. Now the room that they showed it in it was not as big as this one, it was something similar to that. And so Leon would come in the back and walk down the aisle here, and he had a he had a huge um, uh, throne there that Cleopatra, I mean the Theta Bear or somebody sat on there. Beautiful, her beautiful buns graced it, and he did, his ugly buns dis disgraced it, and. Uh, and he'd sit down, and then in order to encourage us, you know, the picture's all finished, he'd say, roll the garbage. And uh, that, that was sort of, you know, it made you feel like he you know, really cared. And uh, so they rolled the garbage, and um, it was that picture, and the duck was all the way through it. And uh, at the end of it, why, and nobody, Chris, made any sound. You could hear crickets in the background, because we knew it was, it was like a death knell, you know. But Leon never paid any attention to what anybody was doing. He didn't care whether they laughed or not because he, didn't, he never, he didn't, it was only whether he laughed that mattered. So at the end, while he jumped up and he looked angrily around the room, we thought it was anger at any rate, he said, Jesus Christ, that's a funny voice. Where'd you get that voice? <laughs> so having stupid producers is, uh, and having a beautiful wife are the great things in my life. Um, and I have one here, <laughs> not a producer. Um, anyway, no lights have gone on, but they should have gone on long ago. The, um, I also bring you greetings from Ted Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. We'd hoped that he would come here this year, and unfortunately, he's suffering and has, uh, has had cancer around his jaw and so on. I talked to him the other day, and uh, unfortunately, he cannot speak very clearly. But uh, he, think of it, he's 88 years old, and he's had uh, two bestsellers in the last five years. Oh, the places you'll go, and uh, you're only old once. A wonderful man. I worked with him during the war doing a, a character called Private Snafu, and that's where I got to know him. And 15 or 20 years after that, we did uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas together. I directed, directed it, and we wrote the screenplay together. Wonderful man, and he sends you all his greetings and regrets that he could not be here. He would love to, to have uh, eaten, eaten off this golden dish. Uh, a mound of oobleck, no doubt. The, um, I'm on a I've written several books. Well, I've written a, an autobiography, and I'm writing a second one. The first one's called uh, Chuck a Muck, and after Daffy Duck. And uh, now I'm writing one called Chuck a Muck Redux, spelled R-E-D-U-C-K-S. Um, but this recently I was writing, and I, I was thinking of all the confidence that people have here, and that uh, I lack confidence. And I guess that's why I'm so much at home with people like Daffy and Elmer and people like that, mm -hmm. I, and Wiley Coyote. I just don't have the confidence that I, that I should have. And as I said, I don't have any goals beyond the old Spanish 
statement, which I always felt was the, was an ideal and perfect one, and that was that uh, the road is better than the inn. And, and I, that's that's the history of my life in a way. I never seem to land in an inn that satisfies me, uh, but I'm always happy and excited when I'm on the road to see what I can do. I've never ever made a picture for children, and I share that with Maurice Sendak and with, two, with, with Robert Louis Stevenson and people of that kind, because uh, how do you know what is good for a child between five and seven? What if it's Yehudi Menuhin and you want to write a primer on that, what you know about violin making? No, it, it isn't safe. It isn't safe to ever talk down. I think it's the, that anybody that is in films or must always talk up to the audience. You must assume that they're worthy of the best that you have to offer. And writing and all creative work, it seems to me, has a great deal in common with ice skating. Since both require skill and grace and knowledge, but with this essential and vital difference. Whereas the ice skater seeks the most dependable surface possible, the writer artist must go only where there is maximum risk. The surface must support him, but barely. He must always be flirting with danger. Ever-present danger must always lurk thinly below his writing and drawing. The safety of the known, dependable surface is forbidden ground, as is the arabesque, the flying axle, the figure of eight, the showing off. What is dear to the ice skater is death to the writer-artist, for the writer's necessity is indeed the mother of taking chances. And Dorothy Parker one time said, humor to me, heaven help me, takes in many things. There must be courage, there must be awe. There must be criticism, for humor, to my mind, is encapsulated in criticism. There must be a di disciplined eye and a wild mind. There must be a magnificent disregard of your reader, for if he cannot follow you, there's nothing you can do about it. Isn't that lovely? Thank you very much.